So thinking on scale and think, thinking on really, really good processes and infrastructures is very important at this stage, because otherwise you're just going to find yourself in an endless loop when you are trying to catch up people. We are trying to understand what they need. And obviously, I mean, this will impact their ability to grow. This will impact their ability to meet their targets. And then you're going to find yourself in the second loop, which you're constantly replacing people and training new people. But then you are not changing the narrative or changing the problem that you have. Hey everyone, welcome back to the SaaS Revolution show brought to you by SaaStock, the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth and scale. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. Okay, welcome to the SaaS Revolution show. I'm your host, Alex Thuma. Uh, CEO and founder of Sastock, and delighted to be joined today by Ainat Gez, who's the, the CEO and founder of Papaya Global. Welcome, Ainat. Hey, great to be here. Good to have you on the podcast. Where, whereabouts are you at the moment? I'm currently back home, Tel Aviv, Israel. Very nice. It's been many years. I've only ever been once. Uh, we did a, a, a small Sastock meetup there, I want to say 2018, but uh, had a lovely time. So I think it's uh, overdue. Hopefully, uh, can come back and start those up again at, uh, at, at some point. Uh, but I guess it's going to end of summer uh, at, at the moment. And uh, I assume, it'll, have you managed to have a break? No, not really. But I'm, I'm not really good in taking breaks. So that, that's my own fault. Okay. Okay. I, I, something I feel, uh, uh, well, quite passionate about. I mean, it's something I've never been good at uh, as a founder, but uh, uh, getting better over time and uh, feeling the importance. But um, uh, anyway, Ainat, uh, great to have you on the podcast. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, you know, as a person. Who is uh, Inet Gaz? Okay, so I'm 33 years old. I have three kids. Uh, I always say that Papaya is my eldest kids. Company is seven years old, and then I have uh, six, four, and two and a half years old kids. Um, generally speaking, uh, I really love to create things and to invent things. I think that this is one thing that made me kind of start Papaya, but also kind of led me through my career and quite a lot of things that I did at life. Um, I love sports, all different types of uh, sports. So I used to be a competitive swimmer when I was a, a kid. I think that uh, generally speaking, uh, it's, it's an important uh, lesson to have uh, to train for something as you train for on a competitive kind of sport. Um, aside this, I, I don't know. I love quite a lot of things. I love traveling. I love working, honestly. I mean, that's probably kind of the, the worst thing that I can say, but this is reality. Well, <laughs> it, it's helpful. You're running a business if, uh, if, if you like working and certainly love, love what you do. Which It sounds like you do. Uh, tell, tell us about Papaya Global then. You know, what, it is, uh, what is it and why did you found the company? Yeah, so I'm a bit dinosaur in this industry. Honestly, I had two, serv- two services companies before Papaya, both in the domain. Uh, one in the area of relocation and global mobility of people. And the second one, a few years later, uh, we helped companies to start their business uh, at Asia at the time in China. And then we expanded to the continent. So really global expansion, employment, uh, immigration, and everything on ground. So Papaya, in a way, was kind of the digital evaluation of everything that I really like and dislike in this industry. Uh, and I was uh, fortunate to find my uh, co-founders offering Ruben to kind of... Uh, take everything that I knew at the time and all of the problems that I think and that I thought that we need to solve on the global payroll space and kind of to transform them into a product. Um, And really, I mean, we always had this vision that companies are becoming more global. 
uh, multinational companies are just going uh, to be something that is everyone's reality. It's not just, you know, uh, the, the multinational Fortune 100 clients of the world. And they just need better tools in order to support this. So that was eventually kind of the theory then we, that we had when we started Papaya. Uh, we really wanted to take this whole world, digitalize it, transforming it into a real SaaS product. Uh, and this is what we're doing since then. Awesome. And it, it seems to be quite a, a hot space uh, sort of uh, these days in, uh, in uh, the area where Papaya Global uh, uh, is based. So with, within seven years, uh, I understand that you've, you've grown to quite a significant company, scaled pretty fast. What data can you share about the business to the listeners? Yeah, so seven years on the go, uh, we've been growing the business in about 300% year over year since year one until last year. Uh, currently, we are in about, I think we're going to end this year in about 2.5x, uh, uh, so still quite significant growth on last year growth. Um, we've been growing, obviously, the business internally as well, so we are about 800 employees currently. Uh, we are actually trying to keep, I think that in those kind of phases, you always have the sometimes kind of the habits to kind of hire quite a lot of people and so on. But what we realize is that eventually, if you keep the team lean, um, you scale much quicker and so on. And we think that this is very, very important. We are global ourselves. We operate from uh, seven different uh, global hubs. Um, what else can I share? Uh, I mean, in, in terms of venture backed, uh, I, I see that you've raised about 440 million, something, 444 or something like that. Yeah, so, so I think that this is also an important uh, point to mention. Uh, if you're reading the headlines or kind of the crunch base uh, data on Papaya, you see that we, get, we raised almost $450 million in four funding round. But uh, during the course of the seven years that we've been around, the first three years, we raised less than $5 million. And then we raised the remaining kind of uh, amount in the, la in, the, in the coming two years. So I, I think that the, the, the fact that I mention it is because I really think that uh, it's important for founders to understand that if they think that they are in a domain that they can really disrupt and they really believe in their business, I mean, getting tons of, low, of no's and, and literally I got tons of, of them from VCs, it doesn't mean that this is not a real business. And sometimes you just need to get to a place where you are getting to a scale point uh, that all of a sudden everything kind of makes sense for VCs and they understand, they understand what you're doing, they understand the numbers, they understand the industry, they understand the pain, and then it's become easy. Um, so we didn't have an easy start, uh, and, and I think that uh, we're going to talk about uh, kind of scaling revenues and so on in a minute, so I can share how we did it internally with uh, very, very little funding and very little kind of uh, resources eventually to, to do that. Okay, cool. Yeah, and we, we, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. And, uh, and something I also saw that you are, uh, I believe, the first female CEO to build a unicorn in Israel. Um, and there are quite a lot of unicorns in uh, Israel uh, as well. Um, what, what does that mean to you? And, and you think, uh, what more perhaps needs to be done to, to have more female CEOs, certainly not, not only in Israel, but building uh, SaaS businesses and unicorns uh, globally? So, you know, I don't like to be, I mean, honestly, I don't feel comfortable with this title. I think that I'm a, I'm a CEO, I'm a female, Papaya is a unicorn altogether. I mean, I just the think that this title has a lot of issues internally that kind of set and define it in a category that I don't really like. Uh, I think that there are great female CEOs out there, and I see tons of companies that are currently growing. Obviously, it takes time. I think that the whole industry has changed. Everything uh, in terms of kind of 
understanding that uh, having kids, raising a, a, a company and, and eventually kind of choosing to do all together is really possible. It's, it's, it's a personal choice. It's not a matter of somebody that will tell me if it's possible or not possible. Um, so I'm optimistic in general. And I think that the one thing that I try to do myself is really kind of to assure that Uh, we speak about that. We speak uh, very, very openly about the pains because they are, you know, I mean, it's not that you're not paying uh, prices and it's not that you can do everything at all, uh, 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 greatly and, and amazingly and successfully altogether. So if I choose to invest in my company and I do, uh, it means that eventually uh, I choose to be less hours with my kids and I need to kind of manage my time in a better way and so on. But I think that, as I said, I mean, if this is your passion, if you want to do it, it's doable. Uh, and I think that this is the, the most important thing. When I was raising funds, uh, our Series A, I actually had quite a lot of issues raising funds uh, uh, during uh, pregnancy. So uh, I was trying to raise funds when I was five months pregnant. It was chaotic event, was end up being very unsuccessful event. And then three months later, I raised a very successful, very competitive round A just because I was post-birth, honestly, with two babies at home, but nobody knew that, and everything was much easier. So I think that eventually, um, speaking about it publicly, it's also in order to assure that VCs understand that they don't need to decide for anyone that they meet. It's regardless if it's a female or male, uh, I mean, personal issues. We, we all have our own life. We all have like personal things behind us aside from work. Um, but I think that if somebody is choosing to be a CEO and a founder of a company, it means that he really believes that he can make it. So, I mean, this is on him to decide, not for anyone else. No, 100%, 100%. And, and, and congrats on, on, on doing all of that. And, and let's start with your, your journey. So, obviously, uh, I mean, I'm not sure that you publish your ARR, but I'm assuming it's kind of in and around or north of the, the 100 million uh, ARR uh, sort of mark. Uh, and I think, as we, uh, we said before we recording, there are a lot of ranges uh, w within that. Um, but I, I think pre predominantly our, our listeners are more kind of, you know, on the early stage. So we'd like to kind of break it down into just a couple of ranges. So tell us a little bit about, you, you know, kind of zero to one. You've created the business. You don't have any revenue yet. You know, how do you get your first customers? What were some of the key lessons that uh, you did that kind of enabled you to get to sort of one million in, in revenue? How long did that take? So my background was a bit different or, I mean, eventually, you know, I had two bootstrap and services company before Papaya. And for me, kind of assuring that we have paying clients that we solve a problem that they're going to pay for it was the key thing from day one. Even before we really had a product, I wanted to assure that we understand what the product will be and why the, the client will pay for that. So the first million was really kind of going to my network because we were in the main on, on the domain of the problem. I knew the people and try to understand what is it that we can bring them to the table? What's the real kind of MVP that they will be paying for? And how do we make it happen with very, very limited team, very limited resources and so on? And the first million, obviously, I mean, the, 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 the cliche is right. The first million is really the hardest. Uh, I think that uh, eventually people buy your personal kind of uh, willingness and, 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 and the energy that you bring to the room and the really the needs to sell them and so on and your total commitment. Um, and the funny thing is that I think that during this period of time, uh, we actually managed to acquire the client. And then this client has been acquired by, a, I think, General Electric, Electric or General Motors, can't remember. But all of a sudden we got this contract uh, MSA back from a uh, you know, um, fortune client telling us uh, we, we are happy to proceed, to, to proceed the service, but just sign our MSA 
with those terms that there was no chance in the world that we could afford, you know, I mean, you know, payment terms of 200 days, uh, insurances that we didn't have and so on. And, you know, I think that the first thing that I learned there is that you also need the right clients to this right stage. And as much as we wanted this logo, we needed to say, sorry, we cannot meet. I mean, we we just can't make it happen. Mm -hmm. Um, So choosing the right clients, I would say that this is the, the really, really, really most important thing, because at this stage, you need clients that you feel comfortable that you'll be able to meet their needs and their standards. So if you are chasing a large client, Obviously, the cost of operation just to get the foot in the door will be much more expensive and you probably cannot afford it. Just assure that you are chasing the right clients and the minimum standards they will ask you is something that you can meet. And then um, just spend as much time as you have in the day. Because honestly, I think that there is no other way. The first million dollars is being uh, sold by the founders. Mm -hmm. You cannot bring a salesperson to sell the product that you don't know how to sell, that you never pitched and you never brought a client. You cannot outsource this work. And I think that this is one of the worst kind of mistakes that founders try uh, or, or try to avoid because many founders, just they just don't like to be in, on, kind of in the sales domain and the sales zone. But this is how you learn and this is how you understand what your clients need and this is how you understand what you need, what is it that you need to build. So I think that my first advice is that really kind of the first million, it's your field kind of game. This is your work to sell and you learn so much from it that the second and the third and the fourth is becoming much easier right makes a lot of sense and uh yeah i mean we we often uh, uh hear that about you know the founders should lead uh, certainly for the first million um but we don't always see that in practice when i'm speaking to founders uh uh, offline, uh, uh, unfortunately. So uh, hopefully, as long as we can keep repeating the message, that uh, uh, that people will get that. And so when you got to, uh, to to one million, and then that kind of next journey again, it's sort of a big ish range. Uh, you know, you, you could even break that down. But the kind of the one to ten million, uh, I guess, kind of this stage, you you, you know, you're growing business. Um, you you know, uh, you're looking to be, uh, I guess, kind of get that sort of repeatable sort of model. And um, what was was some of the things, uh, you know, the key lessons during that phase for you? So again, we were very limited with funding. We raised round A when we were about $7 million in ARR. And honestly, I mean, I sold the majority of that. Uh, and I was trying to find the hacks. How do I, how can I sell it with limited kind of, you know, uh, resources? Because I really wanted that the majority of the funding that we will, that we, we raised will go, I mean, towards the product and so on. So. What I learned along the way uh, in those stages is first that you you can find a lot of um, ways to get to people without spending time. So without spending money, sorry, I mean, but spending your time. So you need to invest your time rather than investing money. Um, network effect works really, really well for us. So, you know, I mean, we managed to eventually assure and now it's a very competitive domain, but at the time it was relatively kind of the, the, the start of this whole kind of global workforce uh, trends and quite a lot of solutions. And we managed to assure that people are recommending us in communities because, I mean, I think that the first question that I ask myself is if you need to hire someone in China, what would you do? You're not going to take the, the flight and eventually land in China, right? You're going to Google it. You're going to go to communities. You're going to ask for your colleagues. So we want to be there. We want to be in places where people will look for us. So invested in a lot of knowledge, data knowledge, uh, I think since then a lot of uh, uh, others copied our Countrypedia uh, and so on, but we were very proud of content. Very, very good, really easy to read if you like to read compliance and legislation laws um, about companies around, about countries around the world. 
Uh, and this is actually, I mean, you know, that was a SEO work that we could do uh, in relatively kind of low budget. Uh, investing in network effect, investing eventually kind of, really kind of chasing people um, over all kind of uh, ways, uh, uh, LinkedIn, uh, other places, looking of where they are in terms of kind of finding solutions to the problem that you can solve and be there for them. Now, I always also believe that if you contribute knowledge, okay, I have a knowledge that you don't have. If you need currently to relocate to China, you don't know what to do. If you need some employment solutions in Mexico, you don't know what to do. I have this knowledge. Now, if I'm only trying to sell you this knowledge, it's not going to work. But if I'm just going to eventually share knowledge with you, uh, assure that I can educate you and then kind of try to sell you our services, this also creates a lot of trust. And I think that trust is really important in the beginning because you have nothing else, right? You don't have good references. You don't have like fancy domains uh, and website that you can uh, kind of show. So really try to create trust and try to gain um, credibility as, as an expert in this industry. And I think, again, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of field work. You need to love it. But honestly, I think that this brings to amazing outcome. Awesome. Uh, again, hundred percent agree. And uh, and now, as you kind of uh, well, perhaps some time ago, look past the ten million ARR, and you know, really been in that scaling phase over uh, the recent years. Uh, uh, again, uh, very different from zero to one and one to ten. But what were some of the key lessons here that you, you know, as a CEO, you, uh, as you're building, I guess, kind of rapidly growing business, uh, have brought in that that's helped uh, enabled your success. So I think for us, the key lesson here, because the one to 10, as I said, I mean, I did it almost by myself, but then all of a sudden we had a team and we, we hired a lot of people and so on. But then I think that the key lesson is that we need to be ready to have a team and to have the team motion and to assure that you have system in place, Salesforce or any other kind of tool. Mm -hmm. You need to have playbooks, you need to have training and so on. I think that we did... We did it quite bad in the first year because um, the infrastructures were not there. So it's very hard to take great salespeople, but eventually not to train them correctly. It was also for us during COVID. So it was a bit more kind of challenging as well, kind of train people remotely and so on. Mm -hmm. But you really need to change your mindset. It's not a mindset of you have a group of people in the room and I'm going to answer something, you're going to answer back and so on. You need to have the infrastructures ready. You need to assure that people can be independent. You need to assure that they have everything that they ha need to have in order to sell the product. So thinking on scale and think thinking of really, really good processes and infrastructures is very important at this stage because otherwise you're just going to find yourself in an endless loop when you are trying to catch up people. We are trying to understand what they need. And obviously, I mean, this will impact their ability to grow. This will be impact their ability to meet their targets. And then you're going to find yourself in the second loop, which you're constantly replacing people and training new people. But then you are not changing the narrative or changing the problem that you have. Yeah. Yeah. No, so getting the systems and processes in place and certainly when you're scaling, you know, imperative, but easier said than than done, I think, in in, in many parts. And good to hear say that initially you didn't get it right. Um, and it, it's very hard to get it right. Uh, I think, you know, first time, but you need to kind of learn and uh, iterate from there. I would say that, you know, I mean, obviously, it's always easy to say then, I mean, anything backwards, definitely, and, and kind of give advices. 
But in reality, if you think about the time you spend, if you're not doing it correctly, you spend much more time. So yeah, you need to find kind of few days to do quiet kind of, just set the infrastructure, say, you are, I'm not doing anything else because then you're going to save tons of time. Another advice that I got at the time, and I think it was very useful, mainly during COVID or kind of during uh, training people remotely, was from a very successful uh, co-founder, uh, Adam Miller, that uh, set a cornerstone on demand. And he told me, when you are hiring people, hire, hire them in batches, okay? Don't hire individuals. Decide that you are starting a sales training in March 1st, in June 1st, and so on, and hire in batches, because then this group will also stick to each other, and they will be ha a, 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 able to rely on each other and help each other a, along the way. And this was actually a very, very good advice. And this sometimes also compensates. If you don't have good infrastructures, at least they have it, it, each other to help each other. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and, and thanks for sharing that. But in, and in terms of the um, setting the systems and processes, and you, you mentioned about setting you, you know, a few days uh, aside to do that. So is that what you did personally? Or you know, do you have a, a COO or an ops person, or you know, hired somebody in, a specialist consultant that comes in, to kind of help you figure out what are the systems processes you need to scale? So at the time, you know, we were already scaling quite quickly and so on. We did have people that eventually kind of, I set the targets, I set the goal, we need to do that, they did that. I mean, it was teamwork between sales, between finance, between uh, IT. Um, I don't think that you need to bring consultant or kind of externals uh, in to do this because you need to own this and you need to understand what's the flow. And I do think that you need to test this as well. And I would say that I think that every CEO and every founder uh, once in a while needs to go and test the wholesale cycle of his own company. From how do you generate a lead? I mean, what happens from this stage until the kind of the sales call and kind of see the quality of the process, see if some things got lost along the way, because it happens. Honestly, it happens much more frequently than we think. No, 100%. Um, we're moving into the uh, quick-ish fire round now, uh, Anat. So what one thing has moved the needle the most for you in your career? Not listening to many advice that I received along the way and kind of deciding that I will take my own decision, I will make my own mistakes, but I will also own my own success. Um, uh, speaking of not listening to advice, what is the best advice you've ever received? Okay, I have a good answer for that. So when I left my last job uh, as uh, in, in, in a company to start my kind of, uh, my independent kind of uh, journey, uh, my boss at the time told me, listen, I know that you are all over the place that you like to work, but please try to keep 80% of your schedule for the ongoing and 20% for strategy. For the ongoing, not the here and now, but really kind of the future. And if you are really, really good, you need to change it to 70, 30%. And he's definitely right. That's the best advice that I received. I'm really working hard to maintain this because I think that it's so easy to go to the here and now uh, and you have always so many things on, on the table. But if you're not planning ahead, you're not leading the strategy, eventually you, you will find yourself without a strategy. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, very good advice. Um, what about the biggest failure you've made a lesson learned? Wow, I made so many. Uh, I think during my whole career, um, I had, in my previous company, I decided that I'm actually selling uh, some of the shares to, to a partner, to an investor that I knew that was not the right fit. I knew that we don't see eye to eye in many, many things and kind of how this business should grow. Um, that was a very, very, very rough kind of journey. Eventually, I, I bought my shares back 
and it wasn't an easy journey and it, uh, it was a very painful. And one thing that I learned at the time is that I had a lawyer, you know, when we did this uh, kind of deal and he told me, do not accept the terms that he wants to have to eventually kind of within the commercial annex of what what can what can happen and how can he, can he exit uh, the the position and so on and i decided that i i'm going with trust rather than legal advice and i realized that eventually if you take good people to support you i mean just think on the worst case scenario and let them protect you because this is what you need to protect not the best case scenario yeah yeah um, hardest thing about being a ceo I just think that you wear so many hats and you are very lonely in your decision making. So uh, personally, I like it. I don't, I don't really see it as a hard thing, but I think that sometimes you just want to pause and you want to tell people, okay, I don't want to wear the CEO hat currently. I just want to wear, I don't know, my independent hat. I just want to be a guy of someone that's not taking decisions. Things are not relying on them. But it's a 24-7 job, you know. I mean, you can't eventually bring a babysitter to, to the company as you can with kids and so on. That's always going to be your job as, as long as you are there. What, what's your favorite book on uh, business and why? So I just, I'm, I'm just reading currently Category King, which I really like. And I found that this is a really, really smart book. Um, I read the book that, I forget the, the, the full name, on WeWork. Uh, which was really, really good as well. Uh, generally speaking, I really like to read books that goes to uh, very concrete examples and kind of you can learn from them about companies that you think that did amazingly well or did amazingly bad and just take really good advice from. I'm currently reading the WeWork book and uh, uh, really enjoying it. Uh, it's a really myself. good book. Yeah. I mean, it has everything between, you know, I mean, founders to, to board and investors to ongoing and so on. I mean, it, it, it's a genius book. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and uh, uh, finally, as we, we wrap up, where can people find you online if they want to reach out to you uh, and also uh, learn more about Papaya Global? So obviously, papayaglobal.com, that's the company. Um, Twitter, that's me uh, most of the time. LinkedIn as well. Um, and uh, I think uh, I, I try to write, I try to publish some blogs and thought leaderships and so on and share my personal kind of journey, share, share things that I think that are important in, in the domain that we are leading and, and we are working on. Um, but I think I'm quite accessible out there. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the SaaS Revolution show, uh, Ainet, uh, and uh, being a great, guest, a great guest on the podcast. I uh, really appreciate you sharing to the SaaS doc, uh, community. So uh, thanks once again, uh, Ainet, who has uh, CEO of Papaya Global. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SaaS conferences around the world. Want exclusive SaaS content and actionable insights to grow your SaaS? Join our community of over 36,000 SaaS founders at sasdoc.com.